Welcome back to Rethink Poverty. What's the best way to help people who are poor? We can talk about techniques, but the truth is we need more than that. To really help people, we have to take a look at the stories that we tell ourselves. The stories we believe about what success really looks like, both for you and the people you're trying to help. My guest today is Brian Fickert, co-author of When Helping Hurts. In his latest book, Becoming Whole, Brian explores the importance of stories and how they shape our work with people in poverty. He's here to share some of the lessons that he and others have learned along the way. So Brian, in the last year, you've released two books, Becoming Whole and The Field Guide to Becoming Whole. Can you describe what was your reason behind writing those two books? Yeah. So about a decade ago, uh, we were privileged to release When Helping Hurts, and, and God used that book in far more ways than we ever could have possibly dreamed. But, but since that book came out over the past decade, uh, we've had the following experience. You know, uh, Samuel will come up to us and say, I'm working in this very uh, uh, unusual region of the world with this very uh, remote people group, and they have this particular problem. What do we do? And we got so many very specific questions. And I realized I couldn't possibly ever answer all of those questions, partly because I don't know the answers to most of them. Uh, but there's just so many unique things. And I realized that what was really missing was sort of wisdom, that, that people were kind of looking for very specific tips and tools and tricks for their situation. And, and there can be important tools like that. That's a good thing to do. But that fundamentally, people didn't really have a sense of what's the story. Mm-hmm. What, are we, what is God doing in the world? And how does he normally go about accomplishing his work? And if people just had that sort of wisdom, uh, they could then kind of improvise God's story in their particular setting. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second thing I noticed was that in the past decade, a lot's gone wrong in America. I, I think there's a lot of uh, um, anxiety. Uh, there's um, a sense of loneliness. Um, families are struggling. Communities are, are fragmented. The political process is just a mess. And there's the sense that something has gone wrong in America. And I realized that we've lost our story as a nation, as a people, that, that, that we don't have a very good story for poor people. And we don't have a very good story for ourselves. So what, what is life look, supposed to look like? And what, what's the good life? What does human flourishing really look like? Mm-hmm. And how do we achieve that? And then I thought, you know, it's kind of ironic. We're saying to poor people, kind of come be like us. We're, we're rich and you're poor. And we're kind of implicitly saying that they should become like us, but we're not really that happy. Mm-hmm. And so why are we asking them to join our story when our story isn't that great? And, yep. and so it's really a book about what is God's story for all people, for the materially poor, for you and me, for all of creation. What is God's story? And then how does that apply to how we work with the poor? Mm-hmm. So in Becoming Whole, you kind of show people like maybe we have the wrong story. Here's a new story. Um, but in the field guide, it kind of like shows more kind of real life examples that people are implementing like God's story. That's it. So so there's it, the, the book has in it some fairly abstract things. But at the end of the day, uh, what we want is that when a person walks into your church asking for help with their electric bill, that you know what to do and that you have um, a plan for what to do in that moment 
and that you're well equipped for that moment. And so the, the idea here isn't just to leave people with all kinds of super abstract ideas. Mm-hmm. Rather, the idea is to go from some fairly abstract concepts about the nature of God and the Trinity all the way down to what do you do when that person walks into your church asking for help with their electric bill? Because it turns out that the abstract stuff mm-hmm. really matters for what you do in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so the two books combined move from fairly high level of abstraction down to very practical things that will mm-hmm. help you to do better as you're walking with the poor. Yeah. So since the book's release, what kind of responses have you received? Well, it's a little early yet. And and, um, uh, and so I don't think we completely know what God is going to do yet with this book. But the kinds of responses that we've heard have been responses like, um, this has completely blown my mind. I thought I was going to pick up a book that was going to give me a few tricks. And I picked up a book and started reading it and realized this wasn't just about practical things and helping mm-hmm. the poor. It was that. But it was bigger. It was about who is God and what's the nature of the world and, and how do we be in the world? And they're saying things like this changes everything. It mm-hmm. doesn't just change how I work with the poor. It changes how I parent, how I coach my kids' soccer uh, team. Uh, how, by the way, don't ever check the box that says you're willing to help out. I did that <laughs> when my daughter was five. I ended up coaching a sport for a decade. I didn't know the rules of the sport of soccer. Oh, wow. But, but so... so it, but it's, it's about how to be in the world in a different sort of way. And so the implications are wide ranging. The truth is the book can be relevant for anybody in any walk of life. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not directly yeah. uh, in poverty alleviation. No, if it, it, it's about life. And, and the context is poverty alleviation because I think it helps us to see some things. This is my own story. I, I mean, it's not like I knew all this stuff. I, I, as in writing the book, I learned. And so I'm still learning and growing. But I think in the context of working with the poor in a way that's consistent with God's story, we learn a lot about life in general. And so it's slowly transforming me, very slowly. But, but it's the, the content is changing me. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe some of the different statistics you gathered from the book about how depressed people are these days? It's really shocking. Um, if you look at uh, the statistics, what we find is that anxiety and depression, particularly amongst young people in America, uh, uh, continues to increase. But it's not a new story. A, a lot of us kind of think, oh, the iPhone, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and that's, that, that is part of the story, by the way. But it turns out that um, the data that we have, there's some recent studies that show from 1938, mm-hmm. so, so pre-World War II, Mm-hmm. From 1938 uh, to the present, there's been an, uh, an ongoing upward trend in anxiety and depression amongst college-age people uh, in America. And so despite unprecedented increases in income, unprecedented increases in wealth, uh, we're actually not flourishing more. And, and you know, as I'm an, uh, my training is as an economist, and so, so I'm trained to believe that human flourishing is basically about having... Uh, more stuff, and that the constraint on us having more stuff is income. Mm-hmm. And so my whole discipline is about how can we promote economic growth so that we have more income, that we can buy more stuff. And this is kind of the story of Western civilization. And it's a story that we are inviting poor people into. Mm-hmm. And it's a story that, quite frankly, generates incredible income and wealth. 
and, and, and uh, in ways that are unprecedented in human history. And so I don't want to uh, downplay that. The truth of the matter is, in a purely material sense, uh, the institutions of Western capitalism have wiped out more poverty in a purely material sense than anything else in human history. There's no question. As we export this to the world, we see poverty in a purely material sense plummeting in places like China uh, and India. The problem is there's more to life than stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so the institutions that are fostering this kind of growth are also fostering isolation they're, they're fostering extreme individualism. Uh, they're fostering materialism. And it turns out that individualism and isolation materialism are really horrible for human flourishing. Mm. And there's a huge explosion of literature, in, uh, in, particularly out of the field of psychology, showing that the good life isn't this. Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of like bought into the wrong story. It's a story yeah. of growth and isolation, of mm-hmm. growth and loneliness of growth and anxiety and it's interesting or discovering is that as places like china are adopting western capitalism and again there's good things about it there, there's mm-hmm. great things uh, china in the past 25 years experience has experienced massive reductions in material poverty but we're also seeing evidence that the chinese are saying you know what i'm less happy than i was before mm-hmm. so it, it, it's it's we're exporting our own diseases yeah isn't there sorry the long answer to your question oh no that's a great answer when you make a certain amount of money there's some kind of cap where once you get past this point your happiness will not increase yeah and it's also context specific it's yeah so so the number that number in america might be different from that number is in india because so much of um what social scientists are discovering is that it's really about uh, well, quite frankly, it's about how we feel compared to the people around us. Mm. And, and so um, there's a sense in which my happiness in a material sense is, is sort of a function of how much I have compared to you. Mm. <laughs> and there's a little bit of I want to keep ahead of the Joneses. And so it's really about pride. Yeah. And, and so kind of what the number is depends on the overall economic context that one is in. Yeah. But globally, it is true that in every nation, there is some point at which having more doesn't actually make you happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you were to make more money and move to a more expensive neighborhood, then you might have a higher cap that you feel like you must reach. That's what happens. Where you, wait, you've read all this stuff. So, so, so it's like we're on kind of a consume, earn, consume, earn treadmill. And mm-hmm. it's what we're finding, what social scientists are finding is... It's a little bit like when you get new toys for Christmas. Mm-hmm. You're really excited when you open it, right? It's this burst of joy. And a couple of days into it, you're kind of bored with your new toy. Mm-hmm. And you actually need another new toy to give you that burst. And so we end up on this sort of constant consume, earn, consume, earn treadmill where we achieve some higher level. It's great for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And then we get bored with it. We have yeah. to, a higher level beyond that. And so we're, we're driving ourselves into the ground on this treadmill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had... I don't like exercising very much, Boris. <laughs> so for me, the treadmill it's is... It's 2020, is, is, yeah, Brian. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the, the treadmill is the, the embodiment of all angst. <laughs> well, walking and running outside is always more enjoyable. Oh. If it's warm enough. <laughs> if it's warm enough. Yeah, I had a friend... Um, who they worked with someone who was um, temporarily homeless, and they were able to get this man housing. Um, but it was interesting because 
um, the men that they helped receive housing, I think increased, like his anxiety increased tenfold because he was used to knowing exactly where he was going to get his meals, knowing that he had a small amount of stuff to manage. And now he has an apartment like where he just, his day-to-day activities is like increased and just like knowing how to manage that without like a community around him was like really hard. It's You've hit on just some great themes there. there there's actually a, a book called The Paradox of Choice and um, it's written by a psychologist. I really hate this. My field is economics <laughs> and all the great insights are coming out of the field of psychology these days. <laughs> it basically, economists believe that more is always better. Mm-hmm. So more choices, that the more choice you have, the happier you're going to be. And what that we're discovering is that actually too many choices actually create anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, in the opening of this book, there's a, there's a story. The guy says, you know, when he was younger, uh, he used to just buy blue jeans. And now he goes to the store and says, I want a pair of blue jeans. And there's like 50 different options pre-washed. Mm-hmm. Do you want, where do you want the stitches? And, and he's like, he's paralyzed with all these choices. And it actually creates anxiety because you were afraid of missing out. Mm-hmm. And and so it's a funny thing. We're not actually wired for all of this. And it has more to do with what you were saying. It's about community. Mm-hmm. So that homeless gentleman you were talking about, he liked community. Mm-hmm. That's actually how God has made us. And so yeah. it's less about stuff and more about being together. Enjoying this episode? We have many more exciting interviews to come this year. So make sure you subscribe to Rethink Poverty on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. In the field guide to Becoming Whole, I hear you share a lot of real world examples of people innovating their ministries. Can you describe some of those examples? Tell a story of a, of a, of a very poor church in, in Kenya uh, they had a ministry to HIV AIDS sufferers. And in Kenya, these people are essentially modern day lepers. So if you contract AIDS or HIV, uh, your family uh, rejects you, uh, your friends reject you, and you believe God has rejected you because you've got friends who are engaging in the same behavior as you were who didn't get HIV AIDS and you did. So God has kind of chosen you Uh in this sort of Russian roulette game, God has chosen you to get the disease. And of course, there's all kinds of ways one can get HIV AIDS apart from various sexual practices. But but in any event, you believe that your family hates you, your tribe hates you, your friends hate you, and God hates you. So you typically curl up in the corner and wait to die. And here's this church that's working with HIV AIDS sufferers who have migrated from various parts of the country to the slum where this church is. And this church reaches out and tries to help these people uh, by starting a savings and credit association. It's a form of microfinance uh, that, that, that um, helps poor people to be able to save and borrow money to be productive, to start their own businesses, to pay school fees for their kids, what have you. I got a chance to visit this church and this ministry in, uh, quite a few years ago now. And what I was so struck by was it wasn't just the people were benefiting economically, they were, but they saw themselves as, and they wouldn't have used this language, but they saw themselves as priest kings. They, they, they weren't sitting in a corner waiting to die. They saw themselves as agents of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter 5 teaches us that we are, that Christ is reconciling all things, that we are agents of his reconciling work. And they, these 50, these 50 HIV AIDS sufferers that I visited, uh, they had all gone out and started additional savings and credit associations 
on their own. So they were first brought into a savings and credit association by this church. And as they saw what it was doing for them, they essentially went out and spread this like a good priest king would, starting their own savings and credit associations with about a thousand other people. I said to them, uh, uh, you know, when you come to this church and to this group, I believe that there's prayers and Bible studies in this group. Do you take those with you to the savings groups that you started? I said, oh, yes. And so essentially modern day lepers were being restored as priest kings. And instead of sitting around in the corner waiting to die, they saw themselves as people with dignity and worth and capacity who could spread the knowledge of God's kingdom as far as the curse is found in their little part of the world. And so I like that approach because yeah. that's consistent with God's story. Yeah, Restoring people, not just to people who aren't poor, but restoring people to people who, who minister on God's behalf and his name. I love that. And it's not easy yeah. to get there. Yeah, you're not just paying for electricity bill. You're pay- you are remembering that this person has deep capacity, deep dignity, and honor that should be bestowed on them because that's what God has already done. That's it. That's it. And that the Holy Spirit can actually show up and transform them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, another example, there's a ministry here in Chattanooga where we live uh, called Love's Arms. And Love's Arm is reaching out to uh, women who have been caught up in the whole sex trade. And um, what's so interesting is the founder of the uh, of the ministry, a, a wonderful godly woman here in Chattanooga named Mimi, uh, who goes to my church, by the way. Uh, Mimi herself was trafficked at a young age, and she ended up being caught up in the whole sex trade. And... Uh, got addicted to all kinds of things, and then it's then it's a perpetual cycle of how do I pay for this and all that business. And the Lord got a hold of her life, rescued her in just unbelievable ways. It's a miracle. He pulled her out of the kingdom of darkness, put uh, brought her in the kingdom of light, and now she is as a restored priest king, going out uh, rescuing girls uh, from uh, this whole industry. And those women, once they are rescued, are now going back and rescuing others. And so it's again, it's a story of, I'm captured by the kingdom of darkness, I'm brought in the kingdom of light. As a member of that kingdom, I am a restored image bearer. I'm a restored priest king, and I can spread the knowledge of God's mm-hmm. presence and reign. It's a tremendous story, but how you get into that more empowering posture mm-hmm. is a different approach to working with the poor and different expectations of what could happen than most of us have, I think. Yeah. and. With that specific ministry, I mean, Mimi, she had been through it, and she showed them that, hey, your life can be different, and I am an example of that. I mean, when you invest in someone at your church who might be struggling with housing, like, you know, they are the gatekeepers to their own community and can bring other people in and say, hey, there's a different life you can live. It's really true. And so you're right, the the flesh and bones that Mimi's personhood is captured in uh, or is embodied, and I should say, it is a bridge to that community because of her own story. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the book really, again, tries to get at what is God's story of change. And, and by a story of change, we mean two things. What is the goal? And how do we go about achieving the goal? And, and all of us implicitly have this. When we get out of bed in the morning, we have some sense of here's the goal of life and here's how one goes about achieving that goal. Now, we probably don't articulate it to ourselves very often, but our culture has communicated to us 
something that we've absorbed in our DNA. We, we have a sense of kind of what is the goal and how do we go about achieving that goal. And, and again, in Western civilization, the goal is basically more stuff. And the way we go about getting more stuff is through working hard, increasing our incomes. As our incomes go up, we have more stuff, we're going to flourish. And there's truth in that. That's the problem with so many things. There's elements of truth in it. God does want us to work hard. He does want us to be productive. And the reward of that is partly uh, material in nature that Adam and Eve experienced that in the garden. If they worked, they could tend the garden, they would get to eat fruit. And so, so there's truth in that story. But God's story is bigger and more multifaceted than that simple story. And in God's story, the goal is for us to be uh, what God created us to be. And so what we're discovering, and when I say we, it's not me, theologians are, are unpacking is really what was God doing in the Garden of Eden and who were Adam and Eve in that garden? And it turns out that there's all kinds of reasons biblically to believe that the Garden of Eden is actually a temple. Mm. A temple is a place where God and human beings meet. It's It was the what the whole the the Garden of Eden was was in Scripture essentially analogous to the Holy of Holies in the Tabernacle and the Temple. It's a place where God and human beings had intimate fellowship, and in that Garden Temple, Adam and Eve were actually created to be priests and kings. As priests, they were to engage in worship, not just for themselves, but to lead all of creation into worship. And as kings, they were to rule. Uh, over the creation on God's behalf. And, and the idea was that they were supposed to go out into the world as priest kings to spread uh, God's re- the knowledge of God's reign and presence in the whole earth. And so that's sort of a temple expansion agenda. Mm-hmm. And in that temple expansion agenda, we are wired to be priests and kings. When the fall happens, Adam and Eve get thrown out of the garden temple, and what's interesting is that all of Scripture is actually about how do we get back to the dwelling place of God. Once you start to see Scripture in that light, it changes everything. We're actually longing to be in the dwelling place of God and to be restored as priest kings in that dwelling place. Mm-hmm. That's the story. Yeah. In the New Testament, uh, what we're described, as, what the believers are described as, as the royal priesthood, the holy nation. We've been restored as priests and kings. Revelation chapter five describes us in, in the new heavens and new earth as being restored priest kings. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it means that when that woman walks into your church asking for help with her electric bill, she is hardwired by God Almighty to be a priest king, and God's desire for her is to be restored to being a priest king, to one who worships and reigns on his behalf. Well, that's quite a lofty goal. Most of us are going, you know, do we write the check for her electric bill or not? Well, that's an important question to ask, but a, a more a broader question to ask is what is God's goal for her? Mm-hmm. And then how does he typically go about achieving that goal in his world? And to see that issue about should we write a check or not in the context of that larger story. The ministries that we highlight in our book are ministries that are really trying to restore the poor to be priest kings. What questions do you feel like the church is wrestling with at the moment? 
Yeah, you know, I think, of course, the Western Church is facing so many questions right now about, you know, is the gospel true? And, and uh, what is the church? And, and how do we live faithfully in uh, what's increasingly a post-Christian culture? And so there's mm-hmm. all kinds of big questions. At the Chalmers Center, I think most of the churches that we're dealing with, uh, their their entry point to the Chalmers Center is a little more practical. It's a little more, where it's a little more hands-on. It's, it's more... Um, how do I walk with poor people more effectively? What what are some um, tips? What are some tools? Uh, what are some uh, techniques uh, that you could give us to help us to work with poor people more effectively? And, and that's good. Um, you, you, you know, uh, we do, there are principles, there are tools, there are tips. And so it's important that we ask those. Those are gifts from God. But I, I, I must say that that, that posture to some degree is reflective of the problem. And, and I have this problem in spades. You, you know, Western civilization really has, has, is enmeshed in this idea that we can conquer the world if we have the technology. And my discipline as an economist is this in spades. I mean, I mean, I, I there's a whole feel, a sub-discipline with economics called growth theory. And the essence of growth theory is how do we get our economies to grow and after decades and decades and decades of research, uh, the conclusion is the way that we continue to grow is through uh, technology. Uh, it's not going to be more resources because the world is finite. It's going to be better ideas. And so it's all the whole subfield is about how do we generate better ideas and more technology. And so we, we kind of think that technology is how we master the world. And again, I'm like this in spades, uh, in every part of my life. It's always about if I could learn more, I could find the formula or the recipe for this thing. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. I'm always about learn more, professor, learn more, get the knowledge, get the recipe. Once I have that, I can solve the problem. And there's good in that. We should look. God has revealed knowledge to us. He's revealed truth to us. We should learn from what humanity has discovered uh, throughout centuries of in, in hundreds, thousands of years. That's all a good thing to do. But fundamentally, poverty alleviation is about being dragged from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and having a miraculous thing happen in your life. And it requires a supernatural act of God Almighty to be restored as a priest king. And, 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 and so our posture needs to change. Yeah, we need knowledge, but we sort of like need the Holy Spirit to show up and do something yeah. miraculous in individuals' lives, in our communities, in our systems, in our nation. We need the triune God to show up and do a miraculous thing in all of our lives. And so um, our posture needs to change. It's not mm-hmm. that the tools and tricks and tips don't matter. They do. Yeah. There's plenty in our books but we're putting too much emphasis on that and not enough emphasis on the triune God showing up and doing a miraculous thing. Mm-hmm. And that changes our affect and it changes what we look for. One thing that I believe is super important is that I think any relational ministry, whether it's people under the poverty line or anyone, is slow. It is. And I think since we live in such a fast world, um, I think we just expect change to happen at kind of a faster rate. Um, but if you're walking with someone in any walk of life, um, gaining their trust and knowing that if that person has experienced trauma in any form, gaining their trust 
that runway extends about tenfold. And so knowing that, you know, it's going to take a long time to gain trust, but still knowing that if you saturate your work in prayer, that change is possible and God can do wonders in people's lives. Or you've got it. I don't change very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and so I can say I'm going to uh, diet this year. I'm going to exercise this year. And I get all excited. And when we get into it, I really haven't changed very much. And, and, and yet we expect poor people to make dramatic changes in their life. And boy, they better do within our two-year grant cycle because mm-hmm. we've got to report back to our financial supporters that Shazam happened. Yeah. And so, so every nonprofit ministry, there's an anxiety about, we have got to get these poor people straightened out because we've got to report back to our donors. And, and, and so the whole, the whole dynamic of the financial supporters and the ministry and the low-income people is set up wrong mm-hmm. Be- because the ministry is in this paradigm of having to produce Shazam that only the Holy Spirit can do. And if we don't produce Shazam, the money's going to run out. And so a huge part here of the story is what you were saying. We have to have a slower, a slower pace mm-hmm. or expect slow. But the, the problem for the financial supporter is they've given money and they can't tell if the ministry's doing anything or not. And, yeah. and, and so they, they're in a bad situation. They, they need to know they're stewarding God's money. Is something happening here? Should I keep giving to this thing? And so there's the stewardship questions they're asking are good questions. They don't have the information. It's really hard. Yeah. And it's I a think really hard problem. It's so much easier. Stuff is like quantifiable. I've given this thing. Totally. I've supplied rent. This person having three new friends, that's that's kind of hard to calculate. Totally. That's it. What we're hoping that these two books will do to say, look, uh, maybe we should focus a little less on measurable outcomes and a little more on, is the ministry pursuing a process that seems to be consistent with how God normally works in the world? Mm-hmm. And maybe we should focus a little more on faithfulness. Now, this this is a touchy one, and because you can just you can get really lazy as a ministry and say I'm just being faithful. And all you're really doing is being lazy. So, so, so it, this there's a tension here. I think we should lean into wanting to see fruit. We should lean into it, but ultimately recognize that only God can do it. Mm-hmm. And, and and maybe focus a little more on are we the kind of ministry that seems to be consistent with how God works in the world, and then pray for rain. Pray that God's going to show up and send showers of blessing. That's a little different posture from, I've got to make it happen here within two years. It's a different affect. It's a different posture. It's hard to get this right. Yeah. Uh, My husband and I were mentors to college students for about three years, and there would be times where I'd be hanging out and investing in college girls. And I would tell my husband, I'm like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm being a good leader or I'm not sure if like, you know, this is meaningful for them. And he would just remind me, all you need to do is be faithful and show up. That's it. Just be present. That's so, that's it. I was talking to a, uh, a young church planter here in Chattanooga uh, recently, and he, he's not planting church the normal way. Mm-hmm. He's basically planting a church by hanging out. 
uh, in neighborhoods and, mm-hmm. and just hanging out. And, and um, he looked at me at breakfast there and he said, he said, Brian, basically I'm a savant at just showing up. He said, doesn't matter what the thing is, I just show up. Whatever, a community event, I just show up. And he said, that's all I am. I'm a, I'm a savant at showing up and being there. That's actually the thing. Yeah. I think that takes away so much anxiety of who you got to be, how much do you need to know. You just yep. need to be there. That's it. How would you encourage churches that feel like they can't help people because they've gotten it wrong the first time? Yeah, we learn from our mistakes and we get back in the game. That's it. God doesn't call us to perfection. He calls us to faithfulness. And we all screw up all the time in all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, saying, man, I made a mistake. I hurt somebody. So, uh, uh-huh. So you repent of that. You learn from it. You get back in the game. You do it better. And God shows up and does something with, with our mistakes. It's just the profound importance of community. You, you know, um, it turns out, again, we are wired for community. And it turns out that uh, we all need community. And materially poor people need it, too. And I really come to see that when we design our ministries, if we're not fostering healthy community, it, 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 we are missing a powerful, powerful dynamic. And, and um, we don't always think of this as Westerners because we're captured by Western individualism, right? And so let me just give a quick example. Um, I mentioned a few minutes ago that, uh, that Savings and Credit Association in that church in rural Kenya well, there's different ways you can do microfinance. There, there's an individual process or a group process. Well, many Westerners are saying, let's figure out an individual lending process because being in a group takes too long. People don't like showing up in groups. If we could just figure out how to lend money, hey, we could even lend money uh, over the iPhones. People don't have to even do anything. We can just lend money over iPhones. And, and, and you know what? It's more efficient. It's true. It's more efficient, but people actually need community, and community is mm-hmm. part of what we're wired for, and it's part of how God restores us as human beings. And so, what happens in microfinance is we work for efficiency, and the efficiency actually undermines the community that's so essential to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And so, how we design the ministry needs to reflect human wiring. And human flourishing. Same in the U.S. We think about, gee, how can we get people off of welfare and into the workforce and in a productive job? And so we'll do some kind of jobs preparedness training program. And Chalmers does this. It's an important thing to do, but that that training ought to happen in the context of supportive community, mm-hmm. and that supportive community needs to last for as long as possible because yeah. we're wired for it. And so that's one example. Community is essential to ministry design. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me throw out one that's a little bit weirder. Um, the Lord's Supper is actually essential to poverty alleviation. Now, that sounds like I've got two heads and I'm from Mars. <laughs> it actually is the Lord's Supper is central to human flourishing. We're wired to be in the very dwelling place of God and God's presence is most keenly felt in the local church when the word is preached and the Lord's Supper is served. And so the Lord's Supper is absolutely essential to how God restores us as priest kings. Well, I don't think many of us think of, gee, when I design my ministry to help low-income people, I got I to gotta figure out how to make sure that um, uh, the low-income people are incorporated into the church family in such a way 
that the Lord's Supper is made available to them. And there's issues here about believers and unbelievers and all that. We discussed some of that in the book, and so I'm not going to get into that in this. But, but um, the Lord's Supper is actually essential to human flourishing for all of us. Well, I don't know of a single ministry in the world that goes, my word, we've got to make sure the Lord's Supper is in, in, in being rooted in the church and flowing back into the church. It's mm-hmm. central to how we design our ministries. That comes out of a different understanding of human flourishing and of how such flourishing is achieved than most Western ministries mm-hmm. are coming from. You mean, so like a ministry having communion? No, but a ministry that needs to be made. Here's a good litmus test. Is your ministry designed in such a way that when the Lord's Supper is being served in the local church under the authority of its leadership, that poor people want to be in the front row of that church mm-hmm. when the communion is being served? Mm-hmm. Is your ministry designed in such a way that that's happening? Is your ministry designed in such a way that low-income people are going, I want to be in deep relationship with the God who is transforming my life, and that God is being presented to me in the bread and the wine as it's being served. You can make it happen with high degrees of intentionality for how you're partnering with the local church. Mm -hmm. Our book includes all kinds of examples of that. We discussed two books in the episode, Becoming Whole, which describes how we can break free from the lie of the American dream and redefine success for you and the people you are trying to help. We also mentioned the Field Guide to Becoming Whole, which dives into the five themes of poverty alleviation and provides practical examples of how others are helping people in their local context. You can find more info on Becoming Whole and the Field Guide to Becoming Whole at becomingwholebook.com.